there was a recent report by WWF, World Wildlife Fund, mm -hmm. that quantified the value of water globally. I believe the number was $58 trillion based on 2021 data, which is 60% of the global GDP. Water is valuable well beyond the price that we pay for it. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome you to a new edition of Driving Impact. And today's guest has an impressive list of accomplishments. We're very lucky to have Will Sarney. And a bit more about Will. Will is a founder of, and CEO of Water Foundry, which is a water strategy consultancy. He's also the founder and general partner of Water Foundry Ventures. Will is a host of the podcast called Distilled by Quatium and is the co-host of The Stream with Will and Tom, so two podcasts. And he's published not one, but five books. So the books are Corporate Water Strategies, Water Tech, A Guide to Investment, Innovation, and Business Opportunities in the Water Sector, Beyond the Energy, Water, Food Nexus, New Strategies for 21st Century Growth, then Water Stewardship and Business Value, Creating Abundance from Scarcity, Creating 21st Century Abundance Through Public Policy Innovation, and then digital water, new technologies for more resilient, secure, and equitable water future. And lastly, water, I wonder. Welcome to Driving Impact. Well, I know it was a very <laughs> mouthful introduction, but I think listen, you've done so many things in your career that I think it's, it's worth the time to articulate it for our audience. Okay, Kathleen, thanks for the opportunity. You, you made me laugh when you were reading my bio. I suddenly felt old. <laughs> Maybe not suddenly, but I appreciate you doing that. And and thanks for the opportunity to have a conversation with you. No, thank you for joining us. And I think you're very rich with knowledge and experience. And I think we're also at an important turning point for the planet. And our audience really cares about what can we do to turn around the water scarcity trajectory and actionable actions. Before we go into the topic of water strategy and dig deep into the water sector, I wanted to go back to a time when you were a kid, just understanding when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you were growing up? And what were the turning points or even like pivotal moments that you realized that, okay, I'm going to focus my career on water and write five books, et cetera. <laughs> okay. So uh, I grew up in New York, New York City, and it, when I was very young, I wanted to be an astronaut, which uh, that did not play out. But I was always drawn drawn to water and, you know, the, the beach uh, for, you know, obvious reasons. And in high school, I started surfing on Long Island. I, I surfed in college and was really, really drawn to the ocean. Yeah, they get everything. big waves. Long Island gets big waves. I, I, not, not not as big as Southern California, Kathleen, but, you know, it, not bad. Not bad surf. And as a result, of course, I thought I wanted to go into oceanography and, you know, sort of continue my passion. It turned out when I was in graduate school, I got a job with a, a groundwater consulting firm on Long Island. And I absolutely got hooked on fresh water. And what that entailed back then was, you know, basically learning about groundwater and discovering sources of water for for people, for communities and utilities and industrial clients and so on. And that was really the front end of my career. So, you know, it was that curiosity with water 
that turned out to be, you know, a focus on freshwater supplies and uh, all the challenges. And I was very fortunate. I worked for a groundwater consulting firm on Long Island by the name of Garrity and Miller and David Miller. Uh, you know, he said, look, if you, uh, if you're interested in groundwater and, you know, you decide that's what you want to do, you'll always have a career in it uh, because it's a public health issue. Mm-hmm. And he was, and he was right. And it has proven very much to be the case. That's amazing. Well, thank you for the the work that you're doing. And I think it's going to help because we're seeing also some people working in different industries that are now pivoting into uh, focusing a little bit more about climate. So from your early career in water, you've had a long list of projects and successes over the years. So can you tell us more about the main projects you're focused on right now and what their goal is? And if your projects are wildly successful, what impact could they have? That's a great question. So the the projects that I have focused on for the past couple of decades have been primarily working with corporations on understanding water, well, understanding the value of water, certainly to their business, but, you know, to society understanding water is a business risk. So if a company doesn't have water, then they they can't run their business. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then strategies to mitigate the risk. So very much focused on the private sector historically and continue to do so. And what I have found over time is that more and more companies are beginning to understand the value of water. Even though the price of water is very low, the value is very high. Mm -hmm. And how do they contribute to solving water. So there's the private sector work that I do that I, I find really interesting and impactful. And I do quite a bit of work with water technology companies. Mm-hmm. So companies that are focused on water conservation or water treatment, water reuse, improving access to water, and then also investing in water technology companies, either as an individual or or through the fund that I I founded and uh, have several partners that I work with on that. So there's really this nexus, this intersection of the work that the private sector is doing that is it's very interesting to me, continues to be very interesting and very impactful and working with entrepreneurs that believe that they have a solution that can contribute to addressing some of the uh, very pressing water challenges that we have. And then also looking at, well, you know, can I do more than mentor a company and be an advisor? Can I, you know, leverage capital and and help them raise funds, whatever it may be, or, or yeah. direct investments? So that's really where I fit in the world of water. And also, you know, I'd like to write books on water. As we've seen. Yeah. So, you know, if you ever have trouble sleeping, pick one of them <laughs> up and uh, it'll it'll cure you instantly. Although... I will say the last book that you mentioned, Water I Wonder, is a children's book. And that was a a very, very satisfying book to write. And I'll continue to write children's books. I have a four-year-old. So I think it's always, I got him, yeah, I got him a book about venture capital investment. I got him a book about finance. I don't think he follows. It's just like, whatever. But I think having access to understanding the value of water, but also of the planet, I think is definitely a good place to start, right, to educate the population. So you talked about multiple great concepts. I wanted to double click first in 
the work that you do with a couple of water technology companies. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these companies? What are they doing and what are they trying to impact in the world? Sure. Another great question. You know, the way I look at this, and, and a lot of my colleagues do also, it's, you know, how do we address water scarcity? And the way we address water scarcity is by reducing demand and reusing water over and over again and finding very effective treatment technologies that don't use a lot of energy, don't generate a lot of carbon emissions, things like that. And I also look at improving water quality, so innovative treatment technologies, uh, and then also improving access to water, which really kind of cuts across a number of those first two. So the companies that I find interesting and work with or or want to work with and, and want to invest in are companies that are very focused on digital technologies. And, and you mentioned you come out of the IT sector. Yeah. So it's essentially companies that can collect data and turn it into actionable information. Mm. So there's a big movement right now around leveraging satellite data and turning it into actionable information, the ability to forecast. There's a company called Jibe, G-Y-B-E, that uses satellite data primarily coupled with on-the-ground sensors, and they can monitor surface water quality remotely. Oh, wow. So if you think about the applications for that, they have the ability to provide real-time data on water quality, mm -hmm. which is valuable to water utilities that collect water from surface water bodies. It's important for private industry that uses water for manufacturing beverages and food. Yeah. It's also important to the uh, public sector who, you know, in a community might manage, you know, a swimming beach or recreational water. So remote ten sensing technologies like that, I find to be really interesting. There's a company called True Elements, out there that has aggregated publicly available water data, mm -hmm. water quality, water flow, couples it with climate change scenarios, and they can give you a snapshot of what water quality looks like and water flow data within your area, mm -hmm. and also has integrated climate scenarios. So, you know, developing an understanding using artificial intelligence on how things might change over time. There is a company called Transcend, Transcend that uses artificial intelligence. And I use AI quite a bit because it's an interesting development in the world of water. And they they design wastewater treatment systems and they can do it quickly. They can do it using their AI engine mm -hmm. and they can come up with different designs depending on climate scenarios and other factors. So the ability to collect information on a real-time basis and forecast what things might look like going forward and also using AI for design is an important segment of what I find interesting and impactful uh, in the world of water in both the public and the private sector. And then, you know, reducing demand. Uh, we need to use water more than once. You know, in the U.S., we treat water to drinking water standards. So that means the water that comes into your home is potable, safe to yeah. drink. 
then we flush our toilets with it. We wore our lawn, we wash our car with it, makes no sense. So giving the homeowner or commercial properties the ability to reuse water by treating it in home. So you might get water that you would use for washing your dishes or taking a shower, and then you could use it to flush your toilet, things like that. And there's a company out of the Netherlands called Hydroloop. H Y D R A L O O P. Okay. You know, and you know, that's a company we invested in and one that I work with closely. So there are a number of really interesting technologies out there that are appropriate for the homeowner, appropriate for commercial properties, appropriate for businesses, the public sector, whatever it may be. And it's really an exciting time to be in the world of water and paying attention to you know, how the challenges we face in the world of water are driving innovation and bringing in entrepreneurs to help solve some of them. I think it's exciting that there are multiple companies and entrepreneurs who are leaned in to be able to solve these problems. I'd love to hear a bit more about, you talked about water conservancy, but also recycling and reusing water in the home. How does it work? Because you said it doesn't make sense that we're using fresh water to wash our car and to brush our teeth and for every single, or to go to the bathroom, right? Yeah, it, there are a number of technologies out there right now. You know, there is HydroLoop. Again, it's Ooh. it's it's designed to treat water in your home so you can use it for another purpose. Not for not for drinking water, but for non-potable, non-drinking water uses. There is a company out of San Francisco by the name of Epic Clean Tech, and they have a water treatment technology primarily for commercial applications. So, okay. you know, think about actually the Salesforce building in San Francisco uses an Epic Clean Tech system in, in their office building. There are a number of uh, technologies for the shower mm-hmm. where you can use shower water, and then when it goes into a drain, it treats the water, and you can use it again, so you're recycling that water. That's amazing. Yeah. So, it, you know, Kathleen, it, it's really, really fascinating that when you have these challenges, you know, whether it's scarcity or poor quality, there are entrepreneurs that rise to the occasion, you know, it these challenges really do drive innovation and uh you know humanity i would say in general has a pretty good track record in coming up with solutions and that doesn't mean that we should just rely let everything yeah you know go down the drain so to speak and you know we'll be saved by tech but you know i I like to focus on things that are going right yeah you know yeah I think it's exciting that we have a lot of entrepreneurs who are focusing on these water scarcity issues. So you talked about the Salesforce building and the fact that water is being recycled and reused. Is it a widespread principle across all businesses that they're using such technology? No, it's not widespread. So, you know, part of my my mission, if you will, is to, you know, have conversations like this and, and point out that you know, there are technologies out there that that we can leverage, we can adopt. You know, it's a matter of getting the word out, if you will. It's, it's in part changing public policy. 
to make it easier for these technologies to uh, scale and you know really be a viable solution in a big way so yeah it you know it, i usually not and i'm gonna say usually but i always quote the author william gibson a science fiction writer and his quote goes something like the future is here it's just not evenly distributed yet and i love that quote because if you look around you can find solutions that appear to be out of the future mm -hmm. and someone invented them and someone invested in them and someone gave them a try and if we could increase awareness and you know let people know that yeah there, there are technologies out there and they they can be done at scale so we do have a bigger impact to your earlier question mm -hmm. then we'll be well on our way to solving some of the challenges we face in the world of water and you know climate change and and so on so there's a couple of a lot of gold gems in what you said so if we look at there's the government right because you talked about private policy there's also businesses and then there's the individual right so how do we if we start with government how do we change policy how can we impact policy as individuals so it is uh, education and awareness so understanding what the issues are mm -hmm. and getting out and voting on these topics and making it very clear to those running for elected office or in elected office that issues like climate change and water matter that social issues matter mm -hmm. And you will vote accordingly. I also believe there's an opportunity to, you know, as they say, vote with your wallet, which is buying products and services from companies that align with your values. Yeah. That sends a message to the market for those people that can invest, whether you have, you know, a government IRA, well, or whether you have your an IRA or 401k, whatever it may be, or you decide to make individual investments, you can invest in water technology funds or, you know, individual companies. So, you know, the individual has probably a lot more power than they are aware of, mm -hmm. and we give them credit for it. So I believe civil society is a powerful, powerful force the trajectory that we're on right now with respect to things like water scarcity and climate change and, and so on. No, I think it's very helpful what you said, right? So we can vote. We have the power to vote for elect officials that are going to prioritize water. We also have everything that we buy, right? We can buying with our yeah. wallet or voting with our wallets. That's another way that we can do it. So what are the other ways that the common mortal, the common individual can also drive impact on the water scarcity issues that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly things that you can do in your home, you know, places like California, you know, or, or even Colorado, certainly, you know, just be mindful about using water, you know, how you use water. You know, I can't imagine that uh, people can still rationalize having a lawn in the desert, you know, a grass lawn. Yeah. So, you know, if you own a house and you have a lawn, you know, get, you know, native grasses, native vegetation. You know, if you're in your home, either get water conserving devices or water reuse, you know, to the extent it's, you know, affordable for you. Mm -hmm. Engage with your water utility. Uh, they're a great resource of information mm -hmm. on 
you know, some of the challenges that they face and what you might do as an individual. So, yeah, the power of the individual, the power of civil society at large, uh, you know, is is often underestimated, but it's it's powerful and impactful. I think it's it's very powerful what you just said. I want to double click a little bit more on what are the water conservation technologies, and I'm asking candidly because I live in a home and I don't even know what the water con conservation. Yeah, so I would I, I don't know what what a utility you know you get your water from, but I would reach out to them and ask them, you know, what do you what do you recommend for my home? Mm -hmm. Do you have a rebate program where you get a discount? You know, that they'll basically cover part of the cost. But you know, water efficient fixtures, low flow, low flow, flow toilets, low flow, you know, shower heads, mm -hmm. leak detection equipment in your home. You know, detecting leaks is really important, you know, things like that. So there, there are technologies that are out there. I mean, if you do have a lawn, then, you know, there are smart irrigation mm -hmm. technologies that are, I would say, getting a lot of attention right now. So, yeah, I, I would start with you, your utility, and I would encourage everyone to do that and just reach out to them. They're a great source of information, and the nature of the relationship between the water utility and the customer-consumer has really changed over the past few years. Now it's a two-way conversation. They want to know, you know, how they're performing. They want to be a resource for their customer base, yeah. and there are technologies out there that they can steer you to. Yeah, that that would be really my starting point in, in all of this. It's a good one. And you talked about the fact that water irrigations are trending right now. And how is that so? Yeah, so certain parts of the American West will not let you build a home with a lawn with grass. They are promoting native grasses, native mm -hmm. plants, which is great. Yeah, I think that's where we're headed. and. You know, there are, if you do have a lawn, you know, sort of, you know, the old timers for for watering your lawn are primitive at best and hardly efficient. So, you know, there are technologies out there by a company called Hydropoint, mm -hmm. Raccio. Yeah, I know Raccio well. <clears throat> yeah, you know, those those are smart. I mean, and I mean, they're smart and they're smart. They're intelligent watering systems and that goes a long way so you're not wasting water you're not spending money on water that you don't need that your lawn doesn't need to stay healthy and you know your water utility would appreciate that yeah 100 percent. so it's a, a better usage of of resources and time and it's a smart right. system as well i think that's very helpful and then in terms of the enterprise right so what can enterprises do to be able to because we talked about salesforce earlier to optimize a little bit more the how they, they use water. Yeah, corporations. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I think that's actually an exciting part of the story right now and that you are having certainly food and beverage companies pay a lot of attention to water mm -hmm. and how they use it and setting very ambitious goals to use less water and also support the communities in which they operate in. So... You know, you, and, and this is, you know, not all encompassing, but, you know, you see companies 
you know, they have robust programs to understand how much water they're using, how they can reduce that water, how can they can work with their agricultural supply chain because, you know, you need barley for beer, for example, yeah. and how do they work with their farmer, uh, farmers that are in their supply chain? They're investing in technologies, so they're working on uh, identifying entrepreneurs that have innovative solutions, providing pilot project opportunities, uh, funding. Fascinating in terms the whole of what world. they're doing. Yeah, there's a whole yeah, lot and, of operations can can do. Yeah, and it, it's it's more than more than just the food and beverage sector. So, you know, you're seeing companies have data centers. They have goals uh, as part of their replenish program to offset the water that they use. Mm -hmm. So they're partnering with utilities. They're partnering with technology companies. A company by the name of Phytotech, which is an AI leak detection company. So really not just driving innovation and technology, but innovation and partnerships. So really reaching out to other stakeholders that have a vested interest in being part of the solution to water scarcity and, and quality issues. That's amazing. Thank you, Will. And I want to move towards what is the state of water scarcity right now in the world, globally, also in the U.S., <laughs> and we have part of our audience as well as in Canada. So if you can Give us a bit of a download of like, where are we with water scarcity? What are the data points that are important to know? And, and what does the picture look like globally? Well, you know, there have been some recent studies that come out, uh, came out over the past several months. Surface water quality has declined globally by 53%. I think it was between 1992 and, and 2020. You know, and this is using on-the-ground sensors and satellite data. So we're seeing surface water decline. So half half of the quality is... Well, it, well, 53% of the surface water bodies have shown declines. Okay. So so not an absolute decline of 53%. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the American West, the Colorado River Basin, has been feeling the impacts of climate change for you know, some time. Groundwater in the U.S., so, you know, in aquifers... That's been declining over the past several years, actually past several decades, I think over the past 40 years, there've been a significant decline in, in groundwater levels, which means that, you know, we're taking groundwater out of these aquifers at a faster rate than nature can resupply. Replenish, yeah. Right, exactly. So surface and groundwater is stressed because we have been taking out more than is sustainable. There was a recent report by WWF, World Wildlife Fund, mm -hmm. that quantified the value of water globally for all uses. So for ecosystems, for human consumption, for human use. And I believe the number was $58 trillion. Oh, wow in 2021, based on 2021 data, which is 60% of the global GDP. So we think about the value of water, they've actually put a number on it. Wow. And, it, you know, we might argue about the number, but the reality is that that's a big number. So, Extremely valuable. Yeah, right. So water is valuable well beyond the price that we pay for it. 
And that drives companies and that drives states and regions and countries to take actions to preserve that water and value that water and come up with public policies going back to that, that ensure that we have water for ecosystems and for you know human use and, and so on. So yeah, it's it's not encouraging in terms of the numbers, but again, you know, people are beginning to understand the value of water and what has to change and being more innovative from a technology perspective. I think it's important, like awareness, right? Is a starting point, right? Yes. I, don't, I don't think, I think the reason why we invited you as well is to be able to boil down the ocean. No pun intended. <laughs> I can't do that. I might write a book about it, but I can't do that. How's that? Boiling, we're not going to boil the ocean, but to really understand and have a crisp view of what is the situation of water scarcity today. And another area where you focus on right, is water conservation. So I want to hear a bit more about, like, you've wrote all these books, you focus on different angles, right? You have a, a big water sector mission. I want to hear more about your water sector mission around conservation. And we heard already about scarcity. Yeah, so conservation is the way to get at scarcity. So that means that, you know, working with corporations on helping them think how they can manufacture their products with less water, mm -hmm. thinking about residential applications. So what are conservation devices, incentive programs, and so on. So, you know, it, it, the way to address scarcity is to reduce the demand side. And, and if you can reduce demand by getting people to be more efficient and conserve more and also reuse water where they can, or in some cases, not use any water for whatever purposes, then that's how we address scarcity. And right now, there's this big gap between what's available on the supply side. And, you know, I mentioned that surface water levels are down, groundwater levels are down, but demand keeps going up. So, yeah. but the thing to keep in mind is that demand's going up under the status quo. So our goal here is to change the status quo and to get get us to really be more efficient and careful about how we use water so it's better in balance with the availability of those resources. And what and is driving water usage up? Is it there's more people on the planet? Or what is it? Yeah, it's... You know, it's the, the public sector, the private sector, you know, more homes, more products that we need globally. So as I say globally, as people rise out of poverty, they buy more things. Mm, stuff. And they stuff. <laughs> the stuff in our garage or basement, we buy more stuff. And, you know, you need water to make more stuff. And that's a big factor in all of it. And, you know, you more people means more food. And, yep. you know, you need water to grow crops. Yeah. I think it's very helpful to know. So basically, you're encouraging everything that's free cycling and recycling, thrifting. During COVID 2020, I discovered a group Buy Nothing. 
and that was my lifeblood. It was, <laughs> I was a new mom in 2020 in a new city. LA was new, with not a lot of friends. And then I found buy nothing and I would just go and pick up stuff and give stuff and declutter <laughs> my house. And it was literally my number one activity because I didn't have, like, you didn't have a social life during COVID. So you're encouraging. <laughs> And I didn't because I had a newborn and I was like, nobody's going to infect my son. So I think it's good to know that this is where we should be evolving towards instead of buying new or net new things. We should circulate what we have and or declutter or give away. Or... Completely agree with you. My, my youngest son always says, buy something, give something away. So, you know, he, he's right. It's, you know, you, you, you want a new shirt? Well, give two away. You know, it's. That's the Marie Kondo principle. Uh, you know, I, you should have her on the show and she could talk about the intersection of water and, you know, apparel and, or, or stuff. Yeah, I think she's going to go very deep into why we're hoarding so many things and why we're not minimalists. And maybe minimalists could help with, with water overusage and, and water demand as well. So Definitely. So I want to talk a little bit more about, so you've said in the past, we've listened to multiple, the team and I, we listened to multiple of your podcast episodes, but also the talks that you give. So you've said in the past that the net zero strategy doesn't work for water. Can you tell us a bit more about it, right? For the common mortal who's not thinking and talking water all day. So you did your homework. That's good. That's good and bad. Uh, but it's a lot of homework because there's a lot of books and articles and you have a lot of material I, online. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't envy you. <laughs> so, yeah, what I mean by that is that, you know, if you, if you think about climate change, carbon accounting, a ton of carbon is the same no matter where you are, right? A ton of carbon in the U.S. is the same as a ton of carbon in China or mm -hmm. wherever. A gallon or a liter of water where you live is very different than it is where I live. Really? So Tell me more. Well, it's location dependent. Yeah. So if I'm in Minnesota, a gallon of water is common. If I'm here in Colorado or Southern California, that gallon's pretty precious. It's scarce. And so it, it's location dependent. It is water quality dependent. So the water quality for your gallon is going to be different than mine. The ecosystems that depend on it are going to be different. The community that relates to that gallon of water are going to be different. Yeah. So it's it's not transferable. It's always a local issue. And it matters to people, communities, in very different ways. So, you know, net zero for carbon, it works because, you know, what is my carbon footprint? I will get to a zero carbon footprint and I can offset my carbon emissions by buying a ton of carbon anywhere in the world. With water, it's just not the same. I, and well, the whole point about my pushback on that is just to get people to understand that water is a local issue. It's very personal. It has attributes that carbon does not have. It has an economic 
attribute, an environmental one. It has a social one. Yeah. So depending on how you use water, it's different than how I use water. Uh, and it has a spiritual dimension to it that a ton of carbon doesn't have. So I definitely want to hear more about the 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 spiritual dimension of water versus carbon because I'm not sure uh, what it is. Oh, it's cultures, you know, uh, First Nation communities, you know, they just view water very differently as a living entity. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they respect it the way we, in quotes, don't. Mm -hmm. So there's a connectivity to what we would consider to be a resource to manage that is very different than Native Americans, you know, in, indigenous communities in New Zealand, for example. And yeah. it's this whole movement around, it's called personhood. It is basically providing a right as a person to water and personhood has been assigned, given to two rivers in New Zealand. It's been given to the Ganges in India. There have been a couple of attempts, at least more than two attempts, to do that for the Colorado River Basin. Mm. So for me, you know, understanding that that gallon, that liter of water means something different to humanity than a ton of carbon does is mm -hmm. is really what i tend to push and you know you you had me tagged as an activist and uh thank you for that i feel like yeah you know i'm i'm an, i'm an activist i i get the word out that's why i do what i do every day yeah it's very and, precious we tagged you as an activist but also as a water guru because of the depth of the knowledge that you have about water. Well, thank you. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's why I push back on that zero, really get people thinking differently about, you know, the value of water and, and you know, the attributes that, you know, we typically don't assign to a resource like that. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, you talked about the personhood concept, right, in New Zealand, and then try to do it in Colorado. So how does it, I just want to make sure that we can understand what, what it means really in reality. Like is water a person, an entity? Is it, to have a relationship yeah, it, with water? Yeah, I, personhood is just a term. It doesn't mean that it's a person. I mean, well, I probably have a very, very different view, but it's basically giving the, the river a legal right. And, you know, that legal right takes into account what's best for the resource. And that that is done through, you know, trustees. So people that are assigned to advocate for the the body of water. It, yeah. it doesn't mean that the, the river can speak for itself, although it, it might, and we just don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's really assigning the legal right personhood and then having people assigned to represent that body of water. And I, I think it's a really interesting movement so it's, it's kind of like assumes like like legal rights it's also more respect 
as an entity and maybe there's principles around it, right? That water should be treated a certain way versus just taken for granted. Yeah, Kathleen, I think that's really it. I mean, if if what we can do is get people to pay attention to that water body in a and pay attention in a different way and honor it and protect it and value it, that'll go a long way. Mm-hmm. And then carbon. When I think about carbon, I don't even know what I'm thinking about. Water is very clear <laughs> to me. A river. I love swimming, obsessed with swimming. I used to be a surfer, but carbon is like, I don't know. You said a ton, a gallon of, of, of carbon versus a gallon of water or a ton of carbon versus a ga- gallon of water. It's like, I don't know how we can have a relationship with carbon, right? Versus water. Yeah. it. Yeah. It, a, a ton of carbon is an abstract construct. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it has meaning, but it it's just, there's there's no sort of visceral human connection to a ton of carbon. No. You know, the the you know, it we we need to separate out a ton of carbon from the issues of climate change. I mean, we're you know, belching out greenhouse gas emissions with reckless abandon, and that's having an impact on our climate. So climate change is real, mm-hmm. but getting people to understand what a ton of carbon is all about is very different than that's a gallon of water. And if you put enough gallons of water in a stream or a lake, you can swim in it, you can sail on it, you know, I row, so I row on it. And that just makes it real. It's, It's relatable to people. And that's, I believe that's where we need to get better traction on the issue of water it's it's not mobilizing you know water geeks like me yeah you know we we talk to ourselves you know we're it's like an echo chamber yeah but but have to get people that value water in their own way and understanding that the water that you might row on or sail on is polluted yeah. Or or there's less of it. Or the lake might be closed because of algae. You know, whatever it may be. Yeah. So and and what you do in terms of, you know, reaching out to a, a community to bring these issues to the forefront is is, you know, a critically important piece of the puzzle here because you know, civil society is not going to listen to me and, you know, in, in, with a PowerPoint deck, you know. As I tell yeah, my team, not, not if it's a hundred slides. Not if, well. <laughs> it's so, it's, not if it's a hundred slides in eight point font, Kathleen. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. It's a PowerPoint, not a power paragraph. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good. <laughs> And then when well, I read text, I think about this manager who told me it's a PowerPoint, not a power paragraph. It's like, don't try to jam all the text in there. Don't do it. Well, it, you know, it's it, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I usually, I usually, you know, do a presentation with PowerPoint slides, and when I don't, I always joke, I have nothing to say because I don't have any slides. You know, you just get so used to it, and people yeah. ask me like, what? So what do you generate? Like, you know, do you write a report? No, I, I give you a PowerPoint deck, you know? It's like, 
Yeah. That's it. And I think some <laughs> of the best stories are like decks with only images because oh, yes. it, they become yes. more memorable. And I do think that like it brings us to the next question around water scarcity. How do we address it in a way that people understand it? And how do we become activists in a way that's digestible? What is the best way to get people to understand the issues at hand? Oh, I, I, you have to make it relevant. Just really, really relevant. You know, who's the audience? What matters to them? You know, how do they enjoy water? Do they, you know, do they take water for granted? It always comes out of the tap and it's always safe to drink. That's not the case for a significant portion of the world or even communities here in the U.S. But I think it's, you know, we need to, you know, it's funny it, now thinking about it. We need to demystify it, but we all also need to mystify it. And that giving people the facts, helping them understand what we're facing with respect to water, why it's precious, why it should be valued. And also, you know, going back to your question about, yeah, you know, it's got attributes. It's It's got dimensions to it that connect to humanity in a very different way than, you know, carbon does. You know, I, I've seen a few people, you know, start a conversation by asking the audience to think about the first time they enjoyed water. And, you know, you asked me the question, how did you sort of get into this? Yeah. I think we we probably need to probe more on that and just, you know, what's your first memory of enjoying water or being in water? And, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? It's. Yeah. What is your first memory of enjoying water? I'll share mine. Honestly, I believe it was going to the beach with my parents. I mean, just, you know, I, I grew up in Queens, New York and driving to the beach and just experiencing, you know, the power, the mystery of it, the beauty of it, I I got hooked. I mean, you know, outside of going to, you know, a pool or whatever, it was yeah. that's real, real water, like real right. beach water. Right. Water with an attitude, you know. <laughs> water that would knock you right down. Like that got my attention, you know. And like, so how about you? So as a kid, I was obsessed with water. I'm from Quebec, Montreal, Montreal, Quebec. So I was obsessed with a book that's called, in French, it's La Grenouille et la Baleine, which means the frog and the whale. And it was, I always believed I was a siren. I'm not going to go all woo-woo on you, but <laughs> I really, really loved water as a, a child. We took swimming classes. And this book and this movie was about this, young girl with like red hair who would just swim in the water with in nature and for me that was a sum of life it's like if you can swim in the water like a siren with it's you're happy and then i grew wow. up wanting to be a lifeguard i did all the classes and then i started traveling to surf right never became good and then that brought me to california because i had a dream and and this, the whole shebang i had a dream of moving to California for tech, but also because of this moment that I had when I was in Dominican Republic and I was surfing and I was living in a house, looking at the water and it was like, wow. this is the kind of life I want to live. 
So, but originally my family is from Haiti. So, but born and raised in Canada and now I'm in California. So the joke is that, oh, slowly but surely you're getting closer to your roots, to the heat, to the water <laughs> and stuff. So it's like, I didn't think about it that way, but I get it. So I think I always really enjoyed water as a, as a kid. You know, yeah, it it's powerful. You know, it, when you ask those questions, people usually have a story. I, you know, I, not that I joke about it, but I, I sincerely believe it's the glue in humanity. You know, it's, it's part of it. It's part of what connects us all. And that's important. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And what do you think is missing, right, in the conversation around climate change? With respect to climate change, what's, I don't know if it's missing, but it certainly needs to be amped up is, it's not a, not a hypothetical. It's it's not something that's going to happen by 2050. It's happening now. And what we're seeing in the American West, where you live and where I live, mm -hmm. is something called aridification. And it's the climate is changing to a drier, hotter climate. It's not a trap. It's long-term and it's persistent change. And when you start seeing increase in floodings and in you know extreme weather events, that's because of climate change. So communicating, it's here and now. This is how it manifests itself. This is how climate change intersects with the water issues that we've been talking about. It makes it real for people, and I, I think it's making it real. And uh, you know making it accessible to people and relatable making it real make it accessible and relatable and then what do you think we can do right in terms of accelerating some of the transformation and change around impacting the policies really probably one of the biggest things we can do is is get public policy to change you know voluntary conservation programs really don't work you know they need to be mandatory you know, people need to understand that, you know, they need to be using less and this is how you use less. We need to be creating incentives for techno innovative technologies to be deployed. Uh, you know, I think it really goes back to, you know, how does the individual, how does, you know, uh, a community have a voice and, and, you know, an informed voice about a topic like water, you know, I think that's what it comes down to. And there, there's a lot of work to be done there. Mm -hmm. Do you think this biggest impact could be driven if corporations change their behaviors or individuals? Wow, that's a great question. A great, great question. I want to sound like a consultant. And <laughs> I knew that would make you laugh. No, 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 no. I, I've been a consultant for my entire career. So it's it's not one entity it's you know pretty much baked into who i am corporations are made of individuals mm, that's deep though that's deep well it, but it, you know it, it's true i mean i would say that you know if you look at the workforce now i would say they mostly care about things like sustainability and climate change and you know water related issues and so on so and, and companies are responding to all of that. They're responding 
because their workforce is changing. They're responding because their customer base is changing. You know, they're, I would say, more engaged with other stakeholder groups, you know, and yeah. not, you know, NGOs and, and utilities and the public sector and so on. So I want to go back to the, you know, the, the person and say that corporations have changed because people have changed. And that has been a very positive shift that, you know, when I started out in sustainability, what I heard quite often was that the, the business case was it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, quite honestly, I never really bought into that. What has happened is that I really believe that sustainability and the issues like climate change and water that's the right business thing to do. It's smart business. Yeah. And that's why you're seeing, you know, the big iconic brands out there do things, you know, and making investments. And can you name a few notable brands that are making it, big, big moves? Yeah. I mean, certainly the brands that I mentioned before, you know, so Microsoft and Pepsi and, you know, ABM Bev and Diageo. You know, Unilever, you know, Nestle, you know, it, not just the consumer facing brands, but the the brands that you typically don't think of as, you know, consumer facing, you know, they're they're investing, you know, and they're they're doing it for a variety of different reasons. So things have changed That's since amazing. I first since I first got hooked on this thing called sustainability, uh, you know, a long time ago. And I'm encouraged by that, you know, I would love to see things move faster, but I'm an optimist. So I hold on to the positive that I see. And, you know, I, I'm filled with angst when it's not moving fast enough, but you know, that's yeah. just not me. So, yeah, no, I think it's, I hopefully think it's that's a, yeah hopefully that's a positive thought i think it's positive i think for driving impact we also want to get out of the doom and the gloom and to help people clear their mind yeah. and just focus on on small actions and i think it's very helpful to know the brands that you name that are dedicated to transforming the current state. yeah it, and and that is in no way comprehensive i, I mean really it, there, there are so many companies out there doing good things and you know, making investments. And, you know, I was I was on a call with a friend of mine who's also in the world of water just before, the, you know, our conversation started. And he he runs a water stewardship program with the, the Water Council. And he said, I can't tell you how many companies that I've never heard of that are building water stewardship programs. So that's awesome. These are brands that are not household names that are doing good things and you know he's thrilled and That's i'm exciting. thrilled for him yeah, yeah it's it's a good news story kathleen yeah it's we like good news and we want to triple down on good news and and we want to triple down on baby steps and you talked about the fact that brands who are doing big things in water in the water sector they have different motivations can you highlight a couple of these motivations I mean, why are they doing? I mean, there's obvious ones, but I'm just curious to see. Yeah, that we yeah. I, I'm. 
I would say I'm most interested in companies that want to build a relationship with the communities where they're located. So there are companies out there that have the point of view that they want to be viewed as a important member of the community. Mm -hmm. And what that means now is not just making donations to whatever charity is important, but it's being recognized for contributing to improved access to safe drinking water, improving the quality of the water, addressing scarcity and water stress, things like that. So, you know, they're, they, for me, that's great clarity that they want to be viewed as part of the solution mm -hmm. and that means that they will proactively engage on some of these really tough challenges that we face you know including climate change yeah and i think it's important to have companies leaned in and involved in making big moves there so thank you for highlighting that what are the top three action individuals can take to be able to to help with or water scarcity problem that we're facing in the world? The three things, get engaged. You know, like just get engaged, understand, increase, you know, your awareness of the issues, whether it's climate change or water or energy, biodiversity, mm -hmm. you know, understand the world around you. The second thing would be reach out to corporations, reach out to your water utility, your government agency, your communities in which you live in. And I would say, just get out into nature. Like, just get out. It's pretty amazing. And that will tie it all together. That'll put a bow on it. If people are out, just out and about. So those would be the three. Less time on the computer, more time in nature to be reconnected with nature and where we started as as a species, right? In nature. Pretty much it. Yeah, sounds so simple, but yeah, I'm going with those three. That's amazing. On my side, I'm going to make sure to get Water I Wonder to see <laughs> if I can read through it and see how digestible it is. It's interesting because some complicated things when you read the the book, the the children's book version, the authors actually make a lot of time in crystallizing and, and simplifying the situation at hand versus if they're writing a book for adults. So I do think it's a good way for everybody <laughs> to start is to like buy some children's books about water, about carbon, about climate change, et cetera. And then you're going to get it because nobody has, no lobby has played with that information and that data. Well, thank you. Uh, so one thing I will bring up, so I wrote that book because my sister teaches fourth grade okay. in New York. And I, during the pandemic, I did a webinar for her fourth grade classes and the fourth grade classes in her community. So my sister Celeste teaches fourth grade. I presented to her class and those fourth graders were brutal. They asked the tough questions. 
But that was a trigger to write the children's book. So my sister wrote the intro and Tony Dunnigan did all the amazing graphics for this book. And he found me on LinkedIn. Wow. And he started writing me. And he said, you know, when I was growing up, I did not have access to safe drinking water. And so what do you do? And we started talking. And the three of us wrote this children's book. So that's how things happen, right? It's the magic of connections. and It's the solving, magic. Yeah. Yes. Solving a small problem, then you find the kindred souls that bring them to life. Yes. It's amazing. So Kathleen, thank you for finding me. This was a great conversation. Thank you. And yeah, keep, I, I feel like I'm interviewing you now, but keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Let me know what you think about what I wonder. Yeah, hundred percent. And I want a big shout out and thanks to Becca because she's the one who found you. <laughs> she's the producer and she always finds the gems. She's like, oh, this guy, we got, I'm going to text him. So <laughs> she's amazing. And she's the one who found you. And then she kept following up. So I'll give all the shout outs to her. And for us, we just want to make it simple for people who are busy and we want to help people not be ostriches anymore, which is you don't want to have your head in the sand and you just want to know what are the simple things I can do to impact my planet because everybody cares, but nobody knows what to do. And sometimes the jargon and the data, and it just becomes so daunting that it's people just give up and just put their head back in the sand. So I think that's the goal of driving impact is to help people understand complicated climate related topics. You do good things. Keep it up. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today.